0: Hello and welcome to Communities Forward. I'm your host, Terrell Carter. Communities Forward seeks to share the stories and experiences of people who are making a positive impact within their communities and neighborhoods, especially in the St. Louis metropolitan area. The communities Forward podcast is brought to you by RISE Community Development. You can learn more about RISE and how we participate in the process of helping neighborhoods and communities become healthier and more equitable at www.risestl.org, www.risestl.org. Today's podcast is part two of our interview with Glenn Burley, Community Engagement Specialist at the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council, or better known as EHOC. Since 2004, Glenn has been an active part of the Missouri Progressive Movement and has provided leadership within multiple organizations that seek to make people's lives better. Today's episode is our second part of our interview with him as he discusses the mission of EHOC and how we all can make different.
1: A lot of the discrimination we see is very uh, overt. So it takes the form of um, landlords doing things, doing things such as um, telling white applicants that an apartment is ready to be move in, move in ready next week. Uh, black applicants, they would say, well, this apartment's not gonna be ready for another three or four weeks. Um, quoting people different, um security deposits, so uh, quoting higher security deposits to people with children, et cetera. Um, so various things that are really kind of intended to make you either not apply or not want the apartment to take the apartment, right? So hold,
2: hold on for a second. It's now we all I'm gonna say something that's really broad. And let me say it this way. There would be a certain segment of our population that would say, oh no, you're you're not being truthful. That doesn't happen very often. That, that that's how it used to happen in the 70s or 80s but none of that stuff still happens now how often are those kinds of things occurring or how often are you all being asked to help with those kinds of things or navigate those kinds of things
1: um i can tell you that if we had grant money to hire more people to help more people there are more people that we then we can help <laughs> we 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 get calls constantly um and so what what you know, the bread and butter of our organization. And so essentially what happens is somebody, oftentimes they go in and they apply for an apartment and They and they, you know, they just get bad vibes or however you wanna say it um, about the situation. Um, and so they call us and then, you know, we do an intake with them, we discuss their situation. Uh, folks are sort of, you know, listening for different clues and things about what may or may not be happening. Um, and then we essentially, uh we do testing, which is basically what folks would think of as secret shopper, um, where we send multiple applicants, you know, say some are white, some are uh, black, or we maybe some are straight, some are uh, queer, you know, um, and see if they get differential treatment or told different things. Because we, we can't just, we can't go to HUD and say, this person felt weird about their uh their process walking through the apartment um that landlord's a racist right like like that's not how you know No, no, you
2: have to yeah we all get you have to have evidence you have to have some kind of verifiable you know information or experience
1: yeah so we we have to show a pattern of differential treatment you know so um we we like i said we do our our secret shopping our testers go in they don't they don't know what you know, we suspect may be going on, they simply uh, write down, um, you know, their experience, you know, how it went and then our testing coordinator compares uh, what, how people have been treated, you know. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's uh, interesting how it happens, like say with lending, um, we'll have a situation where um, we'll do lending testing and our Our white applicants, um, they get they get lots of contacts from the bank. So the the banks, the uh, mortgage officers, et cetera, you know, contact them repeatedly and regularly to try and you know get them to, to go with that bank and make that deal. Um, and then you know, we'll have uh, black applicants and they just don't get that kind of service. Um, you know, And you know, if we can show a pattern of that, you know, that, that, that is how uh, discrimination often functions today. It's not necessarily that that mortgage officer is saying, I'm not going to give you a loan. It's just that they just don't really put any effort into getting your business.
2: How would you respond to someone who would say, well, that's just a lazy mortgage lender, or, you know, that I'm trying to be truthful in this conversation. You know, you, you you both, we both know each other, our history. We have a you know, you you came to St. Louis in 97. 97 was the year that I started as a police officer, which is how we actually met each other. Just for the listeners, there was not a negative <laughs> reason why we interacted with each other when I was a police officer. It just so happened that I uh, served, I patrolled a district or an area where you, you know, where you would find yourself, uh, you know, on weekends or whatever, like you, a place you would hang out or perform music. So anyway, the point is, it's and you know that I write, I. Served in academia, all those things, and there's this particular again segment of the population who would say, "Well, why should a mortgage lender give all this time to people who aren't qualified or who aren't prepared or who really are not going to do what they need to do for yeah, well, this?" You know.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, so this is all controlled in our test. So um, the people that we're having apply um, have similar incomes, credit scores, etc. Oftentimes, we actually give. Uh, the protected class or the group of people that we believe are being discriminated against, we'll give that applicant um, a higher credit score uh, than the non-protected class applicant. Um, So this isn't a situation where you have some folks that are better or worse potential customers on paper. Um, On paper, they're equal if or the black applicant is usually better, um, and they still receive this differential treatment. So this, this isn't... You know, it, it, they're not, they're not business reasons for it.
0: Wow. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm
2: trying to think of how we have a script that we, I was supposed to follow, but this is so in, interesting and intriguing. This, the information you just given me, or the information you just shared. How do you all respond then when you find out that there is this discrimination occurring?
1: like I said so we do testing and then um once we do the testing if we believe that you know we have reason uh if we have reason to believe that there is in fact um discrimination going on at a particular place uh we then follow up with the correct level of government so um sometimes it's going to be HUD um sometimes it's going to be Department of Justice uh but At that point, generally, they sort of take over. Um, So, you know, our our job is to get the case up to their standards, et cetera, um, give them the proof that they would need. um, And then at that point, uh, whichever appropriate branch of, you know, department it is takes over, depending on the uh, specifics of the case. Are there is, is there a case that you can share with us, I, I
2: don't want to ask you to divulge any information that you cannot but can you give me an example or is it all kind of classified information that you can't share.
1: Oh no I mean most of these things are are. Uh, you know, p- these are you know generally publicly av- available conciliation agreements and stuff that the feds, I mean they send out a press release often about it. Um, so. I mean, like one recently that we had that sort of, um, you know, in an area folks may know. So Grand Flats um, is a new, pretty, pretty new apartment building that uh, was built on South Grand um, not too long ago. It's like it's sort of grayish brick, uh, multi-story, uh, very nice building. Um, but anyway, they they didn't follow. Uh, what are known as the design and construction rules of the Fair Housing Act which meant that um, despite their signage they weren't actually properly accessible to folks with handicaps Um, and so you know essentially (laughs) we we documented all the things that they obviously um, you know didn't do correctly um, and then uh, you know, send it to HUD and they send out their inspectors and, you know, they measure and do all the things that, that we also did. Um, and then, you know, went back to Grand Flats and said, you know, uh, you guys didn't build a building up to standards. Um, so, you know, that, that's a fairly recent one. Uh, you know, a number of our cases, like if we're talking, um, you know, so, some more sensitive subjects folks don't want Uh, publicize as much, right? Right. Um, But yeah, so I mean, depending on the nature of the case, etc. Usually, HUD sends out a a press release um, when when there is a conciliation agreement. Um, Same thing, uh, Department of Justice has conciliation agreement with the lender around redlining issues, they usually also send out um, a public release. So
2: if I if I'm understanding correctly, like one of the things you all do is to help navigate questions of like housing valuations and real estate pricing and racialization of those things. Is that something yeah. you can talk about?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, a big part of our work and and it, it directly connects to the, the lending stuff is, um you know, the racialization of values in our housing market is, uh, is very extreme. Um, you know, this is something that's pretty widespread. Across the country, um, Dr. Audrey Perry at Brookings Institute, uh, you know, has written a lot about this. Um, and you know, we, we see this manifest in, in, you know numerous ways, but I think two, two most commonly seen ones, one of which is where you'll have, uh, you know, overt, or intentional discrimination, essentially, um, by an appraiser who comes in and uh, appraises a black household, a black house, black owned home at significantly lower than they do white owned homes in the area. And so, there, you know, there's been a lot of things in the news about how folks will call and, you know, they'll get their appraisal back and they'll know that their neighbors sold their house for more than that. So then they'll call the Fair Housing Agency. And, you know, we come in and, you know, take out pictures that identify the house as being owned by a black person, maybe change artwork, et cetera. Um, have a, a white person, uh, meet the appraiser at the home, um, and see if we get a different appraisal back. Um, and oftentimes it, it, there's significant differences, you know, 25, 40%, um, jumps in valuations. Um, once you do, you know, this, what's referred to as whitewashing, um, so that's one way we see it the other and you know probably more destructive way we see it is just in the generalized undervaluation of property in black space um you know so we had one of the there's a lot of issues that that feed into this um but when you look at housing values um and you control for things like Uh, median incomes in an area and and certain amenities and stuff. Um, Whether or not a house is located in a majority-wide census tract is far better predictor of value of a home than, you know, is it close to a park, you know, or or something like that. Um, You know, we see it's a very clear pattern. It's not just in St. Louis. Um, But what it does is it essentially makes it very, very difficult um, to build wealth while living in a majority black neighborhood um, and it's a key thing and it, it it really hits people in a lot of ways so uh, say you own a home the low appraisal of it may make it impossible for you to get a home equity loan to, to say get a new roof or do tuck pointing or something like that necessary to, to preserve the you know value and structural integrity of your home um, you may not be able to sell the home because uh, even if you and a potential buyer can agree upon a price, uh, if that agreed upon price is higher than what the appraisal is in the area, um, then that shuts the mortgage down. So that house doesn't trans- doesn't transfer. And you know, when you do this enough, it's led to what we see in supermajority uh, black neighborhoods around the metro, where there's essentially not a functional private mortgage market um you know it it just it there are still lots and lots or significant numbers of real estate transactions happening in these areas Um, but there are not mortgages for homeowners attached to those uh transactions um and so you know, I tell people, and, and what that does is it, it it turns the the entire market into a cash only market in these areas. Um, you know, a home in Penrose, you know may only cost forty grand, um, and you may and maybe it needs ten grand more of work to just you know get it all tidied up and stuff uh, and move in ready. but you're not going to be able to get a mortgage for it if it's only going to appraise out at 42, even after repairs. Um, and 42,000 may be less than um, a, an SUV, a new SUV or something, but it's you know roughly twice the median black household net worth in the United States. So this home may be very you know relatively affordable, um, but without access to credit, it is simply out of you know, out of bounds for most people to buy one. Um, And so that ends up turning these neighborhoods into areas where it is very, very difficult, you know, to build and hold wealth in. Um, And that that has a whole bunch of negative knock on effects to, to the neighborhood.
2: And so I'm going to ask the obvious question, how much of that relates to what has occurred in St. Louis, North City or any of the other areas? Uh, North County, where predominantly African American or minority cultures or groups are located.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a huge driver. Um, it, it makes it it makes it very difficult to to ha- to be you know even a small time you know developer flipping houses, um, and you know and to set these areas up to you know sort of how I alluded before. Now that there is sort of nationwide, they're sort of becoming proven business model. Um, of these, you know, firms and equity and investors buying large numbers of properties, um, single-family homes, and converting them to rentals through management companies. Like now that that is a, a very you know well-proven business model, um, these areas have essentially become ground zero uh, for it. I, I was uh, talking to a reporter from KSDK yesterday, um, and she had gone out to interview a gentleman I know. Um, a veteran who was trying to use his VA loan uh, to buy a house in Florissant and like many people who are trying to use first-time homebuyer et etc he can't close on a house because he keeps getting he keeps losing the house out to losing out on houses to cash buyers that are willing to waive things and stuff that he can't do with his VA loan um, and so you know not only has this cause disinvestment from North City, right? So when you look at North City, you have long-term disinvestment because money's not flowing through through lending as it is in a healthy uh, real estate market, such as in South St. Louis, or most parts of South St. Louis um, And so when that happens, housing values fall um, and they stay very low because essentially everything is a cash only short sale. Um, and when you do that for decades, it is what you know I refer to as a uh, capital blockade around the neighborhood Um, you know sort of going back to this home equity piece like as a homeowner um, you know people generally expect to at some point during their time as a homeowner use equity in their home um, to you know do repairs and stuff on the house modernize things etc and that is capital flowing into that neighborhood Um, and that capital is generally comes from credit issued on an equity on mortgage um, or an equity loan Um, and when you don't allow those transactions to happen in an area you essentially starve it of capital and when you do that the only possible or the only likely outcome is that buildings fall apart you know, you, like if you can't if you can't do just normal maintenance things that, that are expected of a homeowner um, using the, the same basic financial mainstream financial services tools that homeowner that most white homeowners do, uh, you know, you're setting folks up for failure personally, and you're setting the building stock up for demolition long term. And I, then want, it, I want to, yeah, oh, sorry, and it, it Like in, to, but then in the county, so it, so that's you know how it's made it very hard to build and hold wealth in North City, right? Now in the county where you have these equity firms coming in and buying up large amounts of homes and uh, neighborhoods moving from homeowner to renter, it is different, but it has a similar effect in that if the houses they're shift to mostly rental, people cannot expect to move there and build equity. So, you know, once again, it becomes a place where, you know, it is gonna be perceived as difficult uh, to to build and maintain, you know, household familial wealth. Um, And, you know, and it's similarly, it's, you know, making sure that the money that is flowing through that neighborhood, you know, these transactions, um, that those rent payments, those are building wealth for whoever these investors are, right? Um, so, and not the people that are living in the home. So, when more and more of these homes flip over to being owned by these, you know, investment firms and private equity firms, et cetera, um, we're essentially stripping opportunity uh, from the neighborhood.
0: Hmm.
2: There, I mean, there are so many questions I wanna ask for, the, you know, for your, your vantage point but i almost want to ask the questions again not in an oppositional way but we also understand that you know you and i may view it in a particular way but these investors are looking at it from a different lens and they see what they are doing as a good thing how how would you respond to an investor who goes into a neighborhood and does this and this is the american way and this is capitalism
1: yeah, you know, look, I, I, uh, I, I had this, the uh, report from KSUK asked me the same question. Um, you know, something can be very legal, <laughs> but it, the, just because something is legal does not make it necessarily make it good for the community, right? So it, this person is acting on their own self-interest, and they are doing so in a fashion that is totally legal. Um, is that necessarily in the self-interest of the community members? that live there, that's a different thing, right? Um, So, you know, I understand that these companies have, by law, the right to be able to buy all these homes, Um, but just because, you know, a commercial interest has the right by law to do something um, doesn't necessarily make it good for the community, and I mean, the number of examples of Times where large commercial interests have done things that have been negative to the Black communities—they've done in, in you know, it's like multiple books. Um, oh, yeah,
2: no, no, they're 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 a treasure trove. I've written four of them, so yeah, no, I get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, like I I I, they, I understand, you know, there there is what is right by the law, and then what is there is what is good for the community, and sometimes they're the same thing, sometimes they're not, <laughs> you know.
2: Oh, thank you. We are getting close to our time. Um, I have just a couple more questions. Um, you've given listeners a lot of things to digest. What do you see as the future of equal housing in the city or the region of St. Louis? Or what do you see as the future of affordable housing in the, the city? What are the opportunities? What are the challenges that we need to be thinking through?
1: Um. You know, I, so I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of headwinds. So, A, you know, I think when you look at the locally produced affordable housing um, report card that came out, and then you look at the National Wellcome Housing Coalition's recently repli- released the GAP report, and they show almost the exact same thing, which is that um, we're not, the holes in affordable housing are essentially at 50% AMI and below. Um, So if we're going to alter our, uh, you know, strategy to to meet where the actual need is, um, we're gonna have to drive affordability deeper than the 60% AMI um, that is standard with most tech deals in the city. Um, and I, you know, I, I'll give before you, before
2: you go too far. So you use the
1: acronym. I want to make sure our listeners understand what is AMI. What does it mean? Fifty percent or sixty yeah. percent? Area median income. So, um, and the other acronym is LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit. So, when developers are using these low-income housing tax credits to develop, um, you know, rental uh, units, they they essentially agree to cap um, the mo- the most that they can charge on a unit at a certain level uh, relative to the area median income. Um, and so generally 60% AMI has been where m- I think most units, the overwhelming majority of non-age res- restricted, aka, or sort of senior units um, in the city. When we're looking at our, at our workforce, uh, aka workforce or quote unquote family um affordable housing units, uh, like I said, they've been generally built around 60. Um, We see much more need is actually below that 50, 40, 30. Um, So, you know, I I think that there's, I mean, there's significant headwinds coming up. I mean, land values all over the city have gone up. The uh, tax sales are packed, you know, virtually nothing goes on the LRA rolls anymore because investors are showing up. So land values are going to be increasing. Um, there's no reason to believe that's going to change in the near future. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to need a significant increase, uh, in funding to affordable housing, just to maintain where we're at. If we're going to really start changing things, we're going to need even more money, um, than that, you know, but on the other end of things, like I, I do think that, uh, you know, I, I think that we are also reaching an inflection point in some of these strategies where, you know, we have to question, are they working? <laughs> you know, because because in many times that, you know, they're not um, really showing much effectiveness for the individuals. Uh, you, you know, when you're, when you're looking at place-based interventions, um, if you're not actually tracking individuals, oftentimes, you know, the 10 years later uh, stats of the population, or significantly different group of people than it was um, when the previous snapshot was taken before redevelopment. Um, so, you know, I think we're gonna need to, uh, if, if we really wanna move the needle, like if we really wanna move the needle, you know, I think we have to not just look at sort of, um, you know, affordable housing and uh, asset building strategies as, the only tools in the toolbox. Um, you know, I think if you look at uh, Professor Kianga Yamada taylors work and stuff in Race for Profit, and you know, a lot of the work that we're, we and other fair housing organizations are doing around um, appraisals and stuff, you know, much of this is pointing out something, which is that, you know, we have a real estate system that is extractive of value from Black communities. And until we take steps to stop that extraction, the things that we do to the things that we do are additive, such as giving people, you know, grants and stuff like that, um, are likely to continue not to work as far as actually moving the needle. Um, you know, this last year, uh, so for the, the first, you know, half decade I worked at EHOC, um, you know, I, I was amazed by this, but it's true, stat that the the difference in the gap in between black and white homeownership um, has stayed essentially static since 1900. So home ownership rates for both groups have increased over that time. But the gap between the two is essentially, say, static. And uh, last year, it, it continued to widen. And we're actually now back in the 1800s. Um, it's now as where it was in 1890, which is so close to slavery. It's amazing. Right. That, that's, that this, that's
2: kind of scary. That's scary.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, and I, you know, when I talk to, when I get invited to talk to students and stuff, I always tell people, you know, like, look, you know, I know we all like to think that, you know, the arc of the moral arc of the universe has been towards justice, but in housing, it actually kind of hasn't that much, you know, <laughs> <laughs> We we actually don't have that great record in housing. We're, we, you know, it's you know, take it back to when we were kids. So like in the '80s, the mid '80s, when I was running around Pine Bluff, at, you know, as like a seven year old kid or whatever, that was the most integrated America's ever been. And we have been getting less integrated since then.
2: Yeah, no, that, um, I I concur with those stats. I concur.
1: Yeah, and and so like, you know. It, if if we're really gonna if we're really going to uh, change how things go, we have to stop this extractive part, right? We have to we have to make it so where any community can be an opportunity community, right? Do me, do and, me a favor. Only, be, I'm what's sorry, I
2: just want to make sure that you you use the word extractive a couple of times. So define what you mean by extractive. What does it mean to extract resources from you know minority or black
1: communities? Well, so you know. Uh, just going back to recently given examples. So um, when you have uh, these companies that come in and buy up all this formerly owner occupied housing um, in, you know, majority black areas and then convert them to rental, that's extractive. Because again, you know, the people that are living in those houses are, are no longer building their own wealth, they're building wealth uh, for this company, and that wealth comes from the wages of the people in those buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, that is one way of extracting wealth. Um, in the city, you know, the way we often uh, see it as part of the sort of gentrification cycle is, again, with the low valuations, it makes it impossible um, often to get capital to do upkeep, etc. Um, on buildings in the neighborhood. Um, but I mean, if you reading to gentrification, you know, uh, the undervaluation of black property is almost necessary for gentrification to occur.
2: Well, not just the undervaluation of black property, but black um, effort, black ideas, black whatever. I mean, so I
1: I get what you're saying. Uh, And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I I, I get what you're saying. No, but you know, and I'm talking like, in a nuts and bolts thing, right? Like if I couldn't get that house for so cheap, after the rehab maybe it wouldn't have enough profit margin to make it worth it Mm. right so like I mean it 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 is like you know um so there are numerous ways that that our sort of real estates and financial systems extract value from black space um but it, it is fairly again it's just it's fairly constant across uh majority black neighborhoods not just in St. Louis you know in virtually every metropolitan area in the United States um so you know I I think I think if we you know there's a lot to talk right now about the racial wealth gap and stuff and that's what our upcoming conference is going to be focused on and you know that's the at the heart of the work we do at Sleekra with the banks and stuff um but you know I do think like the sort of recent the recent shelter force, uh, issue, you know, said, look, we've been, we've actually been doing asset building type stuff for, for decades now. Um, and the needle's not actually moving in a direction you would think it would if this was, a you know, that's, you know, successful. Um, and I don't think it's that, you know, these home buyer readiness programs and stuff shouldn't be there. But I do think that until we end the extractive portion, um, we're essentially you know going to be pushing that rock up the same hill over and over
2: okay you've given us a lot to think about a lot to navigate so i want to respect your time as usual uh but and thankful for the 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 amount of information and insights you've given us if people are interested in learning more about eHawk or sleekra how would they find out
0: about you all
1: uh, well you can uh visit either of our websites, uh, EHOC is EHOCstl.org, and Sleekra is s-l-e-h-c-r-a.org. Um, so yeah, you, you should be able to find us on the web, and uh, there will be contact information there.
2: Thank you so much. I look forward to having you in on the show again in the very near future. This is a conversation that's not gonna go anywhere and we can't let it go anywhere. So thank you for being on the front lines, and thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts with us today. Um,
0: look forward to talking to you again.
1: All right, you go.
0: That's the end of our interview with Glenn Burley. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please check back again next week for a new episode,
1: and hopefully you have a good rest of the week.